0: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Our guest on this episode, Lorraine Candy, made her name in journalism as the editor-in-chief of L, Cosmopolitan and Sunday Times Style, but these days she's best known as a guide to the messiness of midlife. Her new book, What's Wrong With Me?, is a practical guide to this transformational new stage of life, and she joined Hannah McInnes to tell us more.
1: So I don't think that starting with asking someone about a title is generally a very original place to start. And I, I don't tend to do it, but I really am. I have to in this case, because you you start with the, this quite strong message. What's wrong with me? And I'm sure you thought I know you would have thought very carefully about that title. And I, I just I'm so interested to hear your thought process as to why you went with that and the message you wanted to send out to readers reaching for the book on shelves.
2: Well, (laughs) my audience and the community that followed me through all the magazines I've edited and through all the writing I've done is predominantly female and we're predominantly Gen X. Um, And what I was noticing was I was constantly saying from my late 40s, so I'm nearly uh, 55 now what's wrong with me? Something's happened to me. I, I don't understand what's going on. What What's wrong with me? So many changes were happening, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And I was hearing it back. I was hearing it on WhatsApp groups. Uh, we have a private Facebook group that goes alongside the podcast and women were saying this and this and this has happened. What's wrong with me? And I thought there's a whole generation of women, you know, a decade's worth of women all asking what's wrong with me. And the point of writing the book was to say, there's nothing wrong with you. There's just a lot of stuff happening that we've never talked about before, that we've never talked about in public, we've not seen culturally, and we haven't discussed. And, frankly, we didn't know was coming. And it was a huge, a lot of it was a huge, huge surprise. And I thought, well, I'm a journalist, and you know, I'm supposed to be useful and I'm supposed to be an editor of the facts. So I wanted to put it all in the book, but I wanted it to resonate with a phrase that women were saying to themselves. I wanted them to see something of themselves in it. It's not a self-help book. It is predominantly a memoir. And it talks to, I do talk to a lot of women who went through the same thing at roughly the same time. I just wanted women to recognise themselves in it.
1: That's that's really interesting. And also you say it's not a self-help, but there is a lot of really kind of important advice from various people in there. And I know know that you were very sort of, it sounds like you were very dubious once about that sort of self-help. We'll come to that as we go through. But when you talk about women reaching out for it, is it a book for just women? Would you expect men to read it or engage with it? And also, I suppose, importantly, in terms of that audience, is it just women of a certain age or could younger women come to
2: this too? I think it's men should absolutely read it. I think men should absolutely be allies around this time of life for women, and they should be as educated as we are now. Predominantly because, you know, the the age group in the kind of late forties, early fifties is the largest growing group of women uh, group group of in employment at the moment and as we know in a fairly patriarchal society we are working with male bosses predominantly with male bosses so they do really need to know All managers we do really need men to know what's going on in women's minds and bodies at this time of life just 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 so those women can be as effective as they can be because given they've got the enormous amount of experience that they have and we want workforces to be more equal because it's economically better for everybody Um, but yes I do think women who are younger uh, should read it as well certainly women in their late thirties, because what what it is is joining the dots um, of your mental and physical health over the years. You know, we don't really know enough about women's health. A lot. lot of the research, as we know, is predominantly carried out on men. So, you know, heart disease, for example, is the biggest killer of women over 50 globally. Most of the research is carried out on men. So there's such a massive disconnect between what we know about women's health and what we knew about their health when they were teenagers. I think Reading it, knowing what's coming towards you, really better prepares you. And if you read it, then you can talk about it. And I think that's kind of what we haven't done. I think the generation before us, the boomer generation, our parents didn't really talk about it. So that was super unhelpful. But perhaps they didn't talk about it because they felt slightly ashamed of a lot of the stuff they went through. And they didn't want to be portrayed as weaker or less competent or less valuable in society. And they're pretty invisible anyway, women over 40 um, for that generation. So I think it is good to read in advance about it and to know what's coming. And certainly I've talked to sort of millennial colleagues when I was working on newspapers and we talked to a lot of young women um, when we gather information for the podcast so it is useful to know what's coming at you I think and if you're in your late 30s if you've got some sense of it and you can join the dots of your health throughout the years it would be helpful to know a lot of these facts.
1: Can I'm going to say and I I don't know I hope that this might reflect the feelings of of other people I I almost feel like verifying your point profoundly uncomfortable and and I find it very hard saying this but as a 40 year old woman who's sort of scared. I feel like there is a sort of worry that people would read it and feel sort of terrified, you know, about what's to come, knowing that the most important thing is obviously that the more we talk about it, the fear goes. So is that hope of amongst that, you know, late 30s, perhaps early 40s, talking about it will just change so that when we come, we we don't have those worries and the fear goes because society is in a different place?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the point there is obviously the argument that you're portraying this stage of life if one talks about it and one talks about some of the unraveling and the terrible physical symptoms that occur I mean I thought I had a brain tumour or some form of early dementia when I went through it Um, but if you talk about it I really do believe if you talk about it, you can get the information out there. It dissolves the fear around it, you know. And we've got to do hard things in life. So if we are a bit afraid, we've got to face it a little bit and work out how it can be best. Use what useful stuff we can lower know, know about. It's not going to affect every single woman in the same way, but whether you are affected physically or not, you will be affected mentally because midlife is a liminal stage. It's a, it's the it's the bit between younger and older and it's full of enormous possibilities so why not be as equipped as you possibly can be to deal with that, you may not experience all the symptoms but you will definitely have less bone mass, you will definitely be more at risk from heart disease (laughs) you will definitely lose 30% of your collagen after the age of 40, you will definitely lose muscle mass, you will age so let's find out about it so that we can be our healthiest and happiest and also use this enormous mental capacity that we have through all this experience of life to do something fantastic so you know I'm a journalist I think you know you just put the facts out there and then you rely on women themselves to work out what they need and to edit themselves so they can feel better about what what's happening I think you've got to talk about it otherwise you know this stuff kind of remains hidden I think fear gets bigger um, around it and I think women are more invisible not less Absolutely. I
1: I felt like, you know, if it was going to have one other title, it could have been almost called sort of Who Am I? Because it's so yeah. much about identity, isn't it? And about really coping with this huge change in identity that every woman, whatever situation they're in, goes through. And, and I felt like the main takeaway all the way through was, um, and I'd love to hear you sort of explain this, is to sort of to sit with it, not to sort of be so busy trying to fill what you call this void and try to evade it, to avoid it, Um, you know, you call midlife an identity minefield. So, you know, why is it so important for people to understand that they need to just slow down and take the time to question it and engage with what they're going through?
2: I think from all the experts I spoke to, so I spoke to many, many women who had gone through this stage of life. They were sort of, um, I spoke to women in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. So I got the whole gamut. I spoke to therapists. I spoke to uh, menopause, perimenopause specialists. um, And I spoke to women who, working in what we call the wellness industry now, who were dealing predominantly with middle-aged women you know who were seeing middle-aged women in their classes what's going on I asked what what are we dealing with in this this void between and actually Julia Samuel the therapist uh, explained that to me there is a time of great change in midlife so we're dealing often with a lot of what they call living losses so your children might be leaving home you might not have had children you might be thinking about that and how it's going to affect you for the rest of your life your parents are aging they're perhaps not as well they perhaps need more care you will probably most certainly have lost somebody uh, in your life so you may have experienced grief or great grief for the first time you'll be coming to a point in your career where there'll be enormous amount of change in your industry because no one stays in the same industry for any length of time without it beginning to change and modernize and will you be relevant at that time you'll be coming to a place where you don't see yourself in anything culturally. You're not in films. You're not the main protagonist in books. So there's so much change happening <laughs> that probably what you need to do, um, according to the people I've spoken to and all the research I did, look at all the neurology and the science and investigation into this as well, is take a moment, is to soften slightly into it, to kind of drop in this what I call the endurance mindset I think this is particular to Gen X actually an endurance mindset you can have it all you can do it all and you've got to be everything to everybody um, and you mustn't show your anger because we don't like it when women are angry in public this this Gen X is a really enduring mindset but it doesn't serve you well in midlife to endure stuff it really is very unhelpful for you physically and mentally so you need to take a moment sit with some of the pain that you're going through acknowledge it recognize it because living losses whether they're real grief or grief of everything else that's happening around you are quite hard to go through, um, and you need to soften into it. And one of the things I learned from most of the women I spoke to is that they need to be they they felt better when they were more vulnerable, uh, when they were able to ask for help, and not to go at everything at this kind of manic pace. That perhaps we as a generation, I think maybe not your generation, Anna, but we as a generation were told we could have it all so we did we took that as do it all and really society didn't step up around us you know men did not step into the places with us we had to do everything ourselves we just kept adding layer and layer upon and we're very tired <laughs> we're quite quite tired by this point in in you know women who've worked uh, out of the home and had families it's been really quite hard work um so i think Softening and taking time to work out what's going on is really, really important. Now, I'm not saying to everybody, "Oh, that's a lovely luxury of stepping out of your job and going on a sabbatical." That's all really performative. It's more mentally softening and mentally taking time and giving yourself a bit of a break around things mentally. It's making those moments in in the day where you aren't so harsh about yourself, where you aren't so critical about. What's going on and letting those feelings, as many of the therapists I talked to set, explained, go through you and just acknowledging them rather than reacting to them. Because they all have, you know, and, and trauma from the past lives in the body. It's a, it's a well-known um, thing that people in therapy, uh, therapists deal with it, talk to me about. And, you know, I talk to women in all different situations. I talk to women from many, many different ethnic backgrounds. I talked to women you know I talked to a nurse who worked in a and I talked to social workers I talked to all women so I wasn't just presenting this kind of white middle class view of, of what midlife was it's we are all essentially going through a fairly similar thing as Gen X women and taking a moment to soften is really really helpful it really does calm everything down and give you time to feel all the feelings not all of which will be great um, and it's not about this kind of oh brilliant you can reboot your career you can restart your relationship it's that's all so performative and so stressful (laughs) and what women of this generation and I think the women coming through perhaps a little bit softer on themselves need is not to have that pressure around them anymore. I mean it's such
1: good advice for, for just for generally all times of kind of tumult and change and and life is to sort of not is you know not to just keep sort of running along the treadmill but just to stop and slow down and 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 work out what's going on and it is easier said than done I mean you do offer some of your own practical tips I wonder if you might share just the little yes. things that make it that, that you know yeah. enable people to do
2: that Well, um, every time we've had, so we've had, we've been doing the podcast nearly four years. So we've had, I think we've had nearly 150 women over the age of 40. Uh, So we have big celebrity guests, you know, everyone from Elizabeth Hurley, Claudia Winkman, Davina McCall to, you know, the experts in their field, breast cancer experts, HRT experts. And every time we talk to these women and the point of the show is to be practical. And we say, give us your five tips. (laughs) What it is, it's not about taking stuff out, stopping. It's about adding tiny, small things into your life that will begin your day in a slightly different way. Some, some, One of the doctors we had said, just, you know, if you could take five minutes in the morning on your own outside in nature, that will set your neurology for the day. If you could have a glass of water first thing, it's about these moments. If you could eat more vegetables. If you could just look at all these things and gradually, slowly add these things in. I was writing a piece on how I thought yoga was an absolute waste of time, ridiculous roly poling around in Lululemon leggings. So I was all prepped to write this very funny piece about it. And um, I did a lot of research and I tested a lot of things. Turns out yoga does actually work. (laughs) You can call it what you like. You can call it your stretches or, you know, just an hour of peacefulness somewhere with another group of, you know, usually women, although I'm, most classes now are half and half that I go to. It really did change my, my life for the better. It really helped in a lot of ways, HRT and then yoga and all these little things, Vadding, in. I took up cold water swimming. Well, I've been doing it quite a long time, but I realised that it's not the swimming that was important. It was the community around the swimming that was really important to me. And Find your swimming, find find your women that are doing something together where you can voice all these little vulnerabilities that you might be feeling in in a very happy, safe place. And it all sounded so woo woo to me. But I did the research, you know, I went in and properly did the research. I looked at all the work that's been done on blue zones around the world where where people live a lot longer. And it's pretty simple stuff, you know, it's, you know, loneliness will kill you, that that will kill you, um, smoking's probably the only other thing as dangerous as loneliness, human connection is the biggest predictor of how long we will live and how healthy we will be, so making those connections, having those friendships, t- checking in on people, unbelievably important for your health. If you tie it all together, it sounds quite obvious, but I think it gets swept up in this wellness and slightly more performative, you know, 10 10 fasts that you've got to do by Friday, and that'll cleanse your liver, all of it, you get swept up in all of that. And that's not the important stuff. The important stuff is your connection to other people, and adding in small things that really affect you in a positive uh, way. Because, you know, you lose a lot of things in, in midlife, you, you can lose your sleep, all of these things that are changing, you need to work out what are your what they call coping strategies um, throughout your daily day and that doesn't mean spending money on new gadgets and all that kind of thing it really means what makes me feel better and if i can regularly work that into my day then i am going to feel an awful lot better by the end of the week and i'm needing to keep it there because it's about caring for yourself really
0: this episode of the podcast is sponsored by marquee tv marquee tv is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II, and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle, and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House, and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p yep three months for 99p with the code how just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before
1: yeah and actually it's, it's hugely helpful because you know we, we do get told a lot of a lot of things a lot of practical advice about sleep about yoga it, I found it, you know, and I think people will find it very helpful coming from you with a very sceptical viewpoint because, you know, you, you you started off saying, as you said, you went out to write that IELTS article, and and it, and it really have they really have proved to be things that genuinely helped you, which I think will help bring a lot of people along with you on that on that sort of you know journey, as you say, you use that word in the uh, podcast <laughs> without perhaps wanting to um, I that about much. journey. But, but yes. can I pick up on the female friendship thing because you know um, it's one of the most lovely parts of the book such a beautiful description of just how important and finding your tribe as you describe it your female tribe is and you know all the way through life obviously friendships are super important and hugely important to people but tell us why those friendships that you made you yourself and that generally women make in midlife are so important and what they can can add and bring
2: well I think For us, this Gen X generation it has been it is really important to have uh, these groups of women around you where you can talk about things that you perhaps wouldn't talk about in your work environment and you wouldn't maybe talk about out loud in the family because it, you you don't want to worry people you don't want to upset people so this friends element just kept coming up every time i spoke to an expert who talked about the neurology of connection and how and touch and how important that is and the kind of simpleness of being able to just go for a walk with someone or you know we're from a generation that you know if you went out you went out for a drink or you went out out (laughs) and actually in this stage of life it really is just being either one-to-one or in groups of women who have similar interests. We found also with the faith private Facebook group that goes alongside the podcast, it's the most I'm on a lot of Facebook groups um through the various things I'm involved in as a journalist and and this group of women are so supportive and so friendly there's just there is never any trouble it's a really you know on most Facebook groups there will be sort of techiness and you know it's like going on any social media or Twitter or Instagram I this is women who desperately want to help each other who are completely non-judgmental because it's a very bonding feeling when you think you're completely losing yourself and you're unraveling at a stage of life when you thought you would have it all together and actually what's happened has completely taken you by surprise and you're not alone. You're not alone in doing it. So being able to take your thoughts somewhere. And also I made quite a lot of new friends um, in midlife because I'd softened a little bit because I was less concerned about what people thought or what was go- what other people were doing. I was less busy. I, I made space and time um, to be with people. I made, you know, I had, I, created these moments where I would phone my very closest friends for just, there's a theory around a phone call that lasts eight minutes is really, really all you need on a phone call. And we, we often put off actual physical phone calls now because they're going to take too long. We haven't spoken to them for ages and take ages. If you set the scene and say, I'm going to have an eight minute phone call with you, you can have the best conversation. So I looked at all the little things that would bring me closer to people, and then I reached out. You know, if I if I go somewhere um, for work, and I travel around quite a lot for writing, and people I interview, then I will log on to a Facebook group that swims in whatever place I'm I'm near, and then I will meet those women. And I've met some of my loveliest new friends um, beside lakes and seas. It just being a bit more open about it, and I would say that has made contributed probably more to to the health uh, my physical and mental health than than anything and I think you you underestimate it at your peril um, because it's really really important neurologically physiologically um, and emotionally and you're going to need those women when all these changes happen when all these living losses start to come at you you're going to be feeling all these terrible feelings and you're going to need somewhere to take it And, and sometimes it's the women or the new women in your life. I mean, I,
1: I said at the beginning that your podcast and these conversations, these Facebook groups, were sort of amongst the first, and you know, people will have definitely noticed that there is a movement. Uh, can I call it that? At the moment, there are, there is, you know. In fact, I was talking to a producer, a radio producer, and he said last year all the books that arrived on his desk or all the, the subject matter that people were talking about was sort of nature and birdsong, and he felt that this year. he he had seen so much more about menopause about midlife and you write in the book times are changing women in midlife are increasingly being seen and heard we're making noise and getting more support than before i I just wanted to hear how your reflection on that and how much it is helping you there are campaigns there are mps getting involved there's policy change um you know how far have we come and i suppose how much further do we need to go how much more noise needs to be made
2: I think I'd call it a revolution more than a movement um, because the silence around what women have been going through, particularly the medical gaslighting, as a journalist, I found it absolutely shocking. I I couldn't believe that a whole group of, a huge group, a huge chunk of the population had been, their needs been so catastrophically ignored. That put their lives at risk. I mean, I, I, I'm not exaggerating. You know, a, a hormone replacement therapy, there was a survey 21 years ago, which I talk about in the book, and I won't take long to explain, that was so, so flawed and awful and stopped women taking a life-saving drug. Now, it doesn't suit everybody, but for those, you know, there's only 10% of the women in the country on it. Those that were, I mean, it changed my life overnight. If I hadn't been uh, prescribed it I would have probably lost my marriage I would most definitely um, have ended up having some some kind of severe psychiatric treatment it was just the more I delved into what was going on with women the more I looked at the statistics they were the biggest age for women to commit to uh, take their own lives is between 45 and 49 the biggest age of divorce is between 45 and 49 and alongside that you've got heart disease osteoporosis dementia huge killers of women all positive, HRT is prescribed to be preventative for those diseases. So all of this was going on, and I was just hearing all these stories of women who had come to the very edge of where they could possibly live mentally and physically, who were losing all sorts of things in their lives. So it is a a revolution because it's so absolutely necessary to save the lives of women over 45 going through the worst, worst... You know, some of the symptoms of perimenopause, which is the 10 to 12 years before menopause, are so shockingly awful. And women being prescribed antidepressants for vaginal atrophy because they can't sit down and they're living their life not being able to sit down... Every story we were told, Trish and I were told, we just kept, thinking this is absolutely shocking why is more not being done on this and you know I had done a bit of work with Davina McCall and, and just before she started to make the doc made the first documentary which kind of showed everybody what was going on before Carolyn Harris the MP started to campaign for women to get the treatment that they needed we just kept uncovering fact after fact thinking this is really shocking it can't be silent anymore so it isn't just a movement it's an actually life-saving revolution and you know women are getting their sex lives back they're getting their relationships back they're getting their their minds back so they're ever more efficient at work you know you've had an army of women over 50 working with one hand tied behind their back just imagine how brilliant they would have been get it sorted out and then life is absolutely joyous at this stage of life so we just as a generation as well just won't put up with it we simply won't put up with it so you know menopause in Davina McCall's book was I think it was number one for 10 to 12 weeks now if you'd said a year ago a book about the menopause will be number one for 10 to 12, beating every other title, usually those big um, war books or the big cookery books. No one would have believed us, but it's there because people need to know about it, because men and women, because the whole of society needs to know about it. So it's a really important subject. (laughs) So yeah, it's it's more of a revolution, I would say, than a, a movement.
1: I mean, guys, it's so it's so fascinating to sort of hear about it, and yes, and Davina McCall's book, and obviously the 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 help that both you, your podcast, your book, Davina's book, has given people is sort of extraordinary. I'm 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 sure it saved lives really because of that. And you know, at the beginning when I said frightening about people sort of coming to that point, frightening is an important thing. Frightened is an important thing to be because of this. You know, the medical, the symptoms that you describe that people can recognize, they may feel frightened by them, they will feel frightened by them. But what you're doing is explaining what they are so that people can see how to deal with them. And I mean, you, you, you it's quite disheartening. And, and I suppose frightening as well to read about the sort of medical sexism that you describe, and the kind of great unpreparedness to prescribe the right amount of HRT to, to describe HRT. And this, this isn't just a menopause book by any means. But do you think that Given how life changing these drugs can be, it turned your life around in a week. I think Davina writes similarly in her book, within one week, that's how life changing it was. Do you think the medical profession are also kind of coming along with this revolution?
2: I think they are. I mean, I quote a survey in the book of female GPs where I think something like uh, 60% or two-thirds of them say that they wouldn't mention their own menopause or perimenopause work because people would laugh at them. That's female GPs. So, you know, that's how shockingly difficult. <laughs> now, that was a survey done um, a few years ago. But yes, things are changing. They really are changing for the better. We do still hear on, on our group and in our community of GPs who are, who are liberally um, prescribing antidepressants which is really unhelpful when the NHS, um, the prescription on the NHS guidelines is HRT, should be the first frontline prescription for women. Um, and there are other things that women can take and look at if they can't take HRT. But I've got a huge history of heart disease in my family. So I wouldn't have taken a drug which is actively helping me live longer. So again, that feels so incredibly unfair because just because of a lack of knowledge, actually, among, you know, I was offered antidepressants twice by GPs when I just knew that that wasn't right for me. It might be right for some people, but it absolutely wasn't right for me. But it isn't a preventative medicine for heart disease or osteoporosis. And it isn't a medicine that will make my uh, sex life better. It's not a medicine that will help me with my cognitive thought process. So it's really unhelpful to still be hearing it. But I do think... I think it is changing because more and more GPs are getting trained. I mean they're under immense pressure. I don't want to be bashing GPs because it's it's really hard at the moment I think to be treating people, but I think just getting the knowledge is what will help and also We always say to listeners and all the experts we've talked to that when you go to a doctor, there are two experts in the room. There's the doctor and there's you. You're the expert on your own body and what's changing and what's not changing. Take a friend with you. Take the list of symptoms from um, either the Balance Menopause app or from the NHS and sit down with your doctor and say, I have these. These are my perimenopause symptoms. Um, I want to talk about what you think would help me for this, not what you think I've got because you might not have the training to to help me through it so I also think women are you know this is again another reason to talk about it women are really good advocates for themselves they're very good advocates for their friends so you you would take someone with you you will go with someone if you've got that knowledge and so I, I think it is changing and I think there's just such huge public talk about it I mean even Oprah did a show on the menopause a couple of months ago so I think when really loud listened to respected voices Uh, are speaking about it then things will change um we are still though getting um ridiculous stories on the facebook group of of women going to doctors i think so lady recently said she'd been told to take up uh sewing because this was natural and she should just endure it um so that does that is shocking to hear now and again but you know i i don't i think that's rarer now than it would have been uh three years ago when we started the podcast
0: That's extraordinary,
1: actually, to to take <clears throat> up sewing. Well, I hope yeah. she. I wonder. Yes. Um, anyway, I I love your advice about taking a, a friend along. I don't think that I would have ever thought about that, and that actually just makes me feel better about a whole load of things. The idea that you you know you can't you can do that, and someone could sort of sit with you and and listen to those things. And one one of the things that you know we've talked about it, but. Is the biggest barrier, I think, to everything. Uh, and perhaps, you know, most of the problem is societal expectations of kind of well, two things really, what a woman should be, and also, you know, what we how we become when we age. So ageism, really. And it feels like we're still a long way away from from changing that. And it was really interesting to read your thoughts and and, and your speaking to people about it being a very Western thing and other cultures just having a very different view of of older women and a very different view of this time of life and sort of seeing it as a great thing and treating it with positivity and you know do you feel that that's a place we can get to
2: yeah i mean there's a the the, the phrase second spring is a japanese phrase because women going through the menopause are much more revered um in that country than they are here and there's all around the world though there are great examples of women who are seen as elders so they're seen as you know, this is where you want to go for your advice. These are the women that know uh, what's going on. And and many women are seen as, you know, sexually liberated at this time of life as well in other cultures, because there's no threat of pregnancy. um, And, you know, you have more time, and as long as libidos are working. So it's, there's a whole, all these touch points in other cultures, which are much more positive um, than the way women are portrayed as not, you know, the value is in youth, isn't it? That's the value is in fertility and the value is in youth. Um, And that's a very odd and strange way to look at women who are really experienced in life and actually really vibrant um, at this stage of life and have, you know, such great things that they can do. I interviewed women in their 70s and 80s who talked about their 50s and 60s as this most youthful, fantastic time when they were trying, testing all of new things. And they were in their, what they call their third chapter Um, of their life I think it's you know if we could try and it starts with ourselves I think because we often use language around ourselves that's fairly negative around what we look like I just I, I think I wrote in the book I think it is impossible for a woman of Gen X to put on a pair of shorts and not make fun of her own thighs. I just don't think we can do it. It's almost programmed into us because we've been programmed for so long to make fun of what we look like because we come from this beach body culture um, that we lived through. So I think we have to start with ourselves. We have to stop saying senior moment and all these kind of things that make us feel older than we are, uh, or, or the older is a bad thing. So I, I've been quite careful with myself to not laugh at myself around things, to not make hot jokes, to not, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's quietly acknowledging your ageing in a gentle way. It's lovely. But I think I try very hard not to be negative about it, and particularly in front of my teenage daughters as well, because, you know, it is not a bad thing, because the alternative to ageing is pretty grim. So... Um, You know, it is a good thing and it's a privilege to be able to get older. It sounds such a trite thing to say, but, you know, the more... I have people in my life who I know are not going to be getting older, they don't have that privilege, then the more I realise that I've just got to stop this negativity within myself about being an older woman. I do, and I think also being an older woman, it's not about, you know, going all J-Lo and being able to hang upside down off a pole, isn't that amazing? Though that is amazing, but that's her actual daytime job, that's what she does all day, every day. Good for J-Lo, she's brilliant. She's a role model, but she's not the only role model. I mean, I think, you know, Emma Thompson's a brilliant role model. Helen Mirren is the kind of groundbreaking role model on women aging and, you know, not really us worrying what they look like and thinking about her as stylish all the way through. So I think it's about just slightly turning that negative volume down yourself and then it is less accepted when you're out and about for people to talk about you like that. Mm.
1: And you actually bring up in the book a most brilliant piece, which I agree that people would do so well to go and find alongside your book, which is that Nigella piece when she turned uh, was it She turned 60. 60 yeah. And it's just a very life-affirming, yeah. I remember reading it and just sort of punching the air. You've spoken a bit about, um, in fact, I, I should go to audience questions in a moment, and we always um, have some fantastic ones from How To Academy audience, so I will make sure I don't dominate all the time. But you've spoken a bit about, you know, you said about putting shorts on, and I think one of the hardest things perhaps for people to, to kind of cope with for many people is actually changing bodies, changing hair, changing skin. And you again offer really practical advice as well as sort of mental and emotional ways of coping with those changes, which I'd I'd love you to share. I mean, both the physical side of things, but combining that with a sort of mental acceptance, you know, and an idea of an evolving uh, identity rather than a me then and a me now.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that's what you've got to get your head around. And you, I think one physically has to get one's own head around <laughs> this because it doesn't matter how you want to present yourself or how you want to maintain what your skin looks like. that it, it is going to age. There's just no way around it. You are losing you know once you lose estrogen um, from your body and it's gradually 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 depleting it's in it's like petrol for the body it's in is in estrogen receptors are all over your body so everything's beginning to change your gum changes as you lose estrogen so your face starts to look slightly different shape so all these things are happening and you can resist it or you can go with it or you can recognize that this is going to happen and that the moment you're in now It's the best you are, and probably your appearance is the least important thing about you. You just have to start those mind switches I think where you're not totally tied to your physical appearance and it's okay to be disappointed you know I lost probably a third of my hair as I got older and you know you you know you're gonna lose your muscle tone you know that you're going to get lines and wrinkles and you can do about it what you will but mentally I think is the is the main change so the, what is very helpful I think is if you find something like I mean you all know as well Hannah that if you cold water swim Nobody cares what you look like on the edge of a lake, and being consistently among women who really couldn't give a toss is quite healthy, I think. So it's that quietening of your voice around it, and putting your value into the other bits of you, and having fun in a different way. Um, I'm not saying don't. You know, I worked in fashion for thirty years. You know, edited Elle, edited Cosmopolitan, and Style, and I love fashion, and I I spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm going to wear and how I'm going to visually present myself to the outside world but it's about making me happier now it's about you know and I, I wore black for many years now I wear loads of colors and I just did a few little things that I thought you know would would make me feel okay when I look in the mirror and I'm not saying I don't feel disappointed every now and again because what's happening as we all know is mentally in our heads we're still 18 so we just think who's who the hell is that I don't I mean I remember you know I mentioned in the book I see Juliette Benoche on the telly in something and I thought what's what How long was she in makeup to look completely different with grey hair? She isn't. She's just in my head. I'm still the same age I was when I still... So it's, it's that constant disconnect is happening and I think we misunderstand that in society sometimes that women want to look younger they don't they're just a bit confused about how they got to here (laughs) from there so quickly it's we don't want to look younger we want to look better we don't we're not anti-aging because that would be ridiculous so it's it's just about working out which bits work for you and which bits don't and absolutely not in any way judging any other women because one of the things that happens is you do you know we we have a lot of women on the Facebook group who've completely changed shape they've either put on a a lot of weight or they've been, uh, they've not been able to do any of the exercise that they've they've done before. And, And it really is a lot to get your head around, but you do have to spend some time getting your head around it because you will be a different person and a different shaped person and a different looking person through these 20 years of your life. So again, talking about it, Um, in a positive and upbeat way because you know there is a sense of just being free of all of that critical judgment in your own head and what they call the therapists will call the shitty committee in your your own head being free of that is fantastic being able to sort of walk away from it and think I just don't care Um, and you know no is a very easy thing for me to say now (laughs) is brilliant so you just have to get to that place gradually I think
1: no, I love the shitty committee um, phrase, which I actually haven't used, but I'm definitely going to sort of think of now. And also, I, I think the thing about wearing colours, your experience, is a very positive thing for people to read. And I've, I really sort of stopped and thought about that because, again, it's one of the things, you know, that's a positive. That's something you, you've been wearing black all this time. Now you're enjoying wearing colours. And actually, it took that identity change and that sort of sitting with it and, and thinking about it and trying new things out. And I think, you know, many people would just put the blinkers on and and just go through not wanting to and without realising those positives. I I need to stop asking you questions now. I also um, don't know how you know about the cold swimming love, but yes, we could (laughs) devote every every interview, I think, to just talking about the joys of cold water. I love reading how I think there are a lot of people who have found, you obviously came to it a while ago, but I do think a lot of people have actually found the cold water swimming thing later in life as an amazing kind of bonder with other people, way of not minding about the body and also just extraordinary therapy.
2: Yeah, no, I think it's really, you just need to find, everyone needs to find a thing that they do. I mean, a lot of my friends have found walking um, because that is so good for you at this stage of life if you do it well and you you get the posture right as well and it's, you know, it's the same as going to hit class. So it's a lot of people finding things that make a difference every day um, to them. Cold water swimming isn't for everybody <laughs> but there is this kind of group community stuff that people can do that I think is really, really helpful. Park runs, all of that I think have been, you know, you're seeing it more as doing something to connect rather than doing something to be thinner or fitter or be able to run further or swim further
1: yes cold water swimming isn't for everyone and there's a lot of things you can do that aren't just sewing as that doctor sort of suggested to to the person on facebook so um i i need to move to audience questions carmen says this book sounds fab exclamation mark exclamation mark i wish it was around 10 years ago. I didn't know anything about menopause, just bits from working in in a pharmacy. My female family never talked about it. I got it before my best friend and was able to signpost to her that it was the menopause, so at least we had each other. look forward to reading. I mean, it's not a question, but I do think it's something really interesting, is that so many of, of us, um, you know, I think it's the same millennials, lots of generations, are our mothers and our families elder women just haven't spoken about it at all they've just kept no. and still now I think that they just find find it very hard not to, you know to talk about it and particularly I think in front of men
2: well I don't think I think there's a misconception that it's because it's uh, in the same way we won't talk about periods and we hide our tampons in our hands when we walk to the loo for some bonkers reason. It's I don't think it's about that sharing this intimate and private thing. So one of the things that happens during the perimenopause when your hormones are going wildly up and down until they... The menopause which is a retrospective diagnosis the weirdest medical diagnosis ever it's a year after your last period which is so mad and inexplicable in the medical industry but the, the the perimenopause the time before it is you can lose real cognitive ability so i i got in the car one day and i couldn't remember which side of the road to drive or not i just was a bit perplexed. I couldn't remember. And I would go into a meeting and I couldn't remember the face or the name of the person that I'd worked with for a long time. This is why I felt I had dementia or some form of tumor. And then I was having horrendous panic attacks, which I'd never had before in my life. And this was all coming because of the, the hormone fluctuation. I think the generation before, many of whom went through quite severe symptoms, didn't talk about it because they were absolutely ashamed of who they had become. I interviewed a woman who had been one of the first long-haul female pilots. During her perimenopause, she couldn't drive. She couldn't even park the car. She was so ashamed of that she stopped telling people she'd been a pilot. So I think there was a sense with the boomer generation that they just couldn't talk about it because they were ashamed of this horrendous loss of confidence and ability to do things. So I feel quite sad for that generation. I don't think it was not sharing it because they were embarrassed about intimate female things. I think they were psychologically quite cross, quite full of rage and very, very ashamed and very sad about something. And I don't think it was something that they could talk about And many of them were on antidepressants, wrongly on antidepressants as well.
1: This is a really good question because we didn't talk about it. And you do talk about it brilliantly in your book. And again, it's one of the very moving parts when you talk about your teenage, uh, teenagers. But <laughs> um, any tips for dealing with stroppy teenagers during uh, menopause or post-menopause? Um, nothing bothers me now except for my stroppy teenager when I take my time, he says, I'm being lazy. And I think, you know, that there is no better question. It's almost like you've read the book, but <laughs> Carmen, who's asked that question?
2: Well, I did write my previous book, um, What's Wrong With You, Mum? <laughs> uh, I wrote that when I when my two elder I've got four children, they're um, 11, uh, 16, 19 and 20 now. So my two eldest girls hit their teenage years. I just... I couldn't understand what was going on. They just thought I was a moron. And they just kept saying, what's wrong with you the whole time? And, you know, obviously at that time, I was beginning to go through my perimenopause and unraveling and losing my marbles. And at that time, what happens in the teenage years is the brain is, this is new neurologically, it's taken apart and put back together again. So we cannot possibly expect them to behave like adults or to be gradually learning and going, their whole brain is being rebuilt. They're all over the place. And once you know that and you can step back and give them a bit of understanding, and also they absolutely have to see you as the worst thing in the world, otherwise they can't leave you. <laughs> they can't possibly separate from you in the chaos of this neurological unravelling without properly separating from you mentally in their head they're protecting themselves it's a survival instinct Um, and in that book I had so many mums saying the same thing why does she hate me why is it so awful why are they so ridiculous and illogical why do they keep calling me a moron why do they (laughs) and it's all because of this unraveling in their minds and, and their neurology and everything that's going on with them physically and all their hormonal changes as well their whole body's being rebuilt their whole identity's being made so of course it's a really tough time for them The only person they want to be there for them really is you, but they can't possibly tell you that because they have to separate from you as well. Somebody described it as you just your job as the parents of a teenager is you just hold the end of the rope while they're flailing around on the end of it. That's all you do. You don't take it personally. You don't get involved in the drama of it. You just hold that rope so you're holding them securely and tightly in this safe place. But that is, as you say
1: quite a hard thing to do when you also feel like you need someone to hold onto a rope that you're flailing around at
2: the end well exactly that's but you have to do that for yourself so this is the advice I always give to to mums and I get lots of um, messages from mums is find something that is for you that makes you feel better mother yourself as well at the same time take that time don't feel guilty about having time out to go somewhere Close the door on the mess in the bedroom. Don't get involved with that. You know, make yourself physically and mentally strong enough to deal with it because it is a storm. Um, and it's it's mostly not your fault, but sometimes it will be a bit your fault. And the other thing I learned was this rupture and repair idea. The, the rupture that you have with teenagers is not not significant. The repair is the more significant bit. So, how you deal with what has just happened is the most important bit, and that you always do with the next day when you are a better frame of mind, when you've had some sleep, when you've taken care of yourself um, a little bit, and when you realise it's you know you've got to set some boundaries, but it's probably not your fault, and you are just holding that rope and calmly watching them as their whole identity and neurology is being rebuilt. So, I think it's you know it is a time of Jedi-like patience.
1: Um, Someone asked whether you think men get a sort of men's menopause. Mm. Um, This person's brother thinks that he's getting dementia and going through a sort of a midlife worries in, in a similar way.
2: Well, testosterone does decrease for men in the same way as it decreases for women. So uh, hormonal, physiological changes are happening. You know, the loss of collagen, the loss of muscle mass, the higher risk of some of these diseases is the same. You know, there are risks for men as well. I also think, um, and we haven't really talked about uh, men, and I don't think they do talk about it in the same way, particularly not the Gen X men, that there is a sense of, you know, relevance. And what's the point of me? Uh, when you start at this age, when, when men in their careers and in their relationships. And when I did the research around the divorce rates being so high in this particular age, I found that men are get, ma- get married again or in relationships again almost within weeks. Um, women don't. Um, Because men are seeking the safety of what they know and the sense of of what they know and and trying to keep their relevance around it. And, you know, we all know the kind of caricature of of the older white male and the much younger female. But I don't think that's helpful for men either. I think there is a reckoning that occurs for everyone at this stage of life. And there are definitely physical changes that happen to all of us as we age. I mean, it's called a crisis for men. I don't really think it is a crisis for, for women in the same way I think it's more of a more of a evolution and transformation
1: has your husband read this book <laughs> he
2: he's kind of lived lived through it I think because a lot a lot <laughs> I mean he lived through me writing part
1: you say you think you'd be cancelled if it was the opposite way in which you essentially write we... a list of things <laughs> and so I, I'm kind of interested in that because you do talk about how couples can kind of get through this together which which is a, and it's a difficult time
2: there, is, there was a thread on our Facebook group, which I think is pertinent and relevant and only significant for Generation X women with Gen X um, partners and husbands, uh, where someone had said, the way my husband chooses when he's watching telly drives me mad. Am I overreacting to this? Am I being a bit mean? Is it my perimenopausal Thing. and the thread under it of all the things that older men did was I just thought it was so funny it was the way he opened the door it's the way he hums all the time and the way all these women just getting out of their system what was driving them absolutely mad about um, their partners and husbands at this time and I thought it's worth I mean obviously if you know if, if, a, if a man had written that about us in there you know, I'd be absolutely furious but then again I thought you know the patriarchal way we Live is pretty, you know, the pendulum is taking a long time to swing towards the middle, so they can put up with a bit of ribbing. We put up with Hallmark cards with hot flushes on for millions of years, so um, a little bit of ribbing back uh, should be allowed.
1: I think this is a really good question. Um, Flamey says, uh, Hi, would, what if you don't have children and you wonder what's wrong with me because of that? And I think it's so important, and you talk about people in that situation too. And I said, you know, this is about identity. Crisis is, or not the word crisis. I don't think you use, but you know this is about identity issues for everybody. And people who don't have children, um, you know, might think that it's worse for them because they wonder what have they done with their lives. You know, and it's important in your book you sort of recognise that all women are going through these worries about what they have done and what they could have done and who they should be. So it's a really important yeah. question that you know there are some people who who feel very worried at middle age, who haven't had children.
2: Yeah, we've had a few uh, women on the podcast, actually. We just recently had Amanda Wakeley and um, Anna Richardson, TV presenter, neither of whom um, have had women, have had children. Uh, Amanda Wakeley's in her 60s and um, Anna's just turned uh, 51. So they talk, and I talk to some uh, child-free, childless women in the book as well. It is a very deep reckoning to go through to realize that you have it's not the same for men is it that you there is now no possibility of having children or a family or offspring in in a a way um, that you you may have done physically yourself so I think yeah it's a really I think it's it's a a deeper reckoning as, as as women who we I'd interviewed women who had lived past the age that their mums had died Um, who you know women in their 50s who'd lost their parents when they were younger uh, in their 50s as well and they had they were hit by this fact almost on the day they passed that birth date as well so there's so what we call living losses it's you know losing your chance at motherhood whether you've had a choice in that or not is is a really huge thing to come to terms with because it does affect your identity and it means what somebody used a really good phrase that up until the 40, your 40s you can sort of see around the corner you can see well I'll have children or well I'll do this or well I'll get promoted or when I do and then suddenly you can't see around the corner and you, you just hit this wall of well what will I be and who will I be where will I go who will my partner be we, we interview, I interviewed a lot of women who'd um, their sexuality had changed But it hadn't changed. They realised that they'd lived in the wrong relationships for a long time, that their their sexual preference was not the one that they'd lived with for 20 years. And because they'd come from a generation where they'd not been able to explore that. And again, that's a huge living loss to start thinking about. And you do wake up a little bit in the middle of the night at this stage of life thinking, did I do this right? Did I do this well? Where do I stand now that I can't have any of these things that I thought maybe... I would have. So it's it's that void again. But it, sitting with those painful feelings, as Julia Samuel um, talked to me, and actually we interviewed Philippa Perry on the podcast The Therapist, sitting with those feelings where you're going from this alpha person, this doing person, to this being person, which is the beta person, which you are more likely to be in midlife, and acknowledging all those feelings and how sad and upsetting they are is really important. Trying to distract yourself from them, whether that be with extreme exercise, Booze, getting promoted, doing, working even harder is a, is a di- is the wrong thing to do um psychologically. So my advice has always been from the women I've spoken to who know about this is you really have to sit with those feelings and and explore that.
1: It sounds like there's a really um, interesting balance to strike though between distracting yourself with the right things, with the swimming, with the things that make you content. And distracting yourself with the sort of drive things that are sort of, I don't, you know, more treadmill sort of style activities, I suppose, with the career, with the with the distractions that don't allow you to sit with those things. And there is a sort of a balance, because in a way, many of us think that we are distracting ourselves in the right way by kind of diving into work or diving into other things.
2: I, I wouldn't say finding the coping strategies as distracting, I would see that as more as nourishing, because I found... I looked a little bit at whether meditating would work um, when I was going through a lot of these feelings. And I just can't do it. It's just not, it doesn't work for me. But actually, I found swimming very meditative. I found that a really good place to be, you know, to sit with the sort of sadder feelings of, you know, the people I'd lost the things that I'd had that had happened in life and the the sort of family trauma that I'd gone through. I'd found the swimming nourishing because it allowed me to absolutely feel those feelings. So you you can't not feel those feelings. You've you've got to feel them um, and you've got to sit with them. The more ignoring them, pushing them down, you know, letting rage and other kind of more fearful feelings take over is very unhelpful. It doesn't really serve us well at this stage of life because we are dealing with Bigger feelings, perhaps, than we've dealt with before, because loss is a really difficult feeling. Whether it's actual physical loss, emotional loss, <laughs> to deal with, but we do. Once you start dealing with it, you start to live more in the moment, and you start to feel happier about the the day to day. I interviewed a woman in her 80s who'd really lived three, four, five lives, um, you know, and was dealing with a time in her life when she was losing people quite regularly. <laughs> so she she said to me, "those fo- those morning phone calls really." <laughs> (laughs) really upset you now but she had really come to this sense of peace in her 60s where she'd started to have really big adventures because she knew that loss was inevitable that she could feel these feelings and she wasn't distracting herself with these adventures she was just enjoying the moments um, of them and doing what she needed for her.
1: I think nourishing is a really good word to sort of tag tag on to because actually, you know, the habits that are nourishing are very recognizable and important ones. I also loved your advice bit about advice about the eight-minute phone call, because actually I think it's a real shame that people aren't using the phone enough. And I think it can be an incredibly an amazing therapy. Like just as you say, eight minutes of hearing rather than endless <laughs> quite stressful whatsapps and messages <laughs> which don't yeah. achieve anything and i i think let's bring you know can you write about bringing back the phone call because i, I really think it's time um unfortunately we have to wrap it up then i just wanted to say so um charles thank you because it's good to have men on board um who is watching um he, he was commenting that perhaps um a gp only gets eight hours training on the menopause which i, I mean doesn't seem like very much i
2: think it's less less which is
1: absolutely extraordinary
2: it's fifty-one percent of the population, and, and it affects all of us. Yeah.
1: So, um, well, and you know, thank you for his comments. He wanted to know if swimming helped your immunity. I thought I shouldn't ask because it was a bit not.
2: Yes, it. Do- I feel it does. Yeah, I'm not. I'm very rarely uh, sickly, as it were. <laughs> uh, I have found I have the cold affects my immunity. I think it's you know, but I think doing something positively makes you feel quite positive anyway so is it the swimming I mean there's a lot of research into the being done into the cold and uh, women and dementia at the, at the moment but I think is it the cold or is it the positivity that I experience for that time I'm with the, everybody
1: well thank you very very much and um this brilliant bright pink book is I think in, in yes in all good bookshops uh, now so if you all can rush out and buy it it's been genuinely lovely talking to you thank you thank very much you. and thank you everyone for for signing in
0: This episode starred Lorraine Candy and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The producer was Luke Naylor-Perrett, and I make this show with Esme Bright. We have help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. Lorraine is going to be joining us in person in September at our second ever How to Change Your Life festival. Details are fully under wraps right now, but if you go to our website and join our mailing list, you'll be the first to hear all about it. Till next time, I'm Das Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.